the dark shadows of the Rue Morgue, to the rhythm of the stolen telltale heart, as the black cat swings upon the pendulum, and the cask offers its sherry deep and dry. As you knock at our chamber door, we open and usher you in. Our sleepless tales for you in store, and the terror shall be lifted. yourself for the no sleep podcast Welcome to the No Sleep Podcast. I'm your host, David Cummings. In our world of no sleep, we strive to banish sleep with horror. But sleep doesn't always allow us to escape from fear. Dreams are part of the foundation of horror stories, so much so that we have a subset of dreams specifically for those horrible nocturnal visions which wake us in terror. Yes, those dreaded nightmares. In this episode, we feature stories where a person's strange dreams or waking visions evoke an unsettling reality. Is it real, or is it just our imagination? Do they predict what is to come, or do they remind us of times lost which will never return? It's a subject matter born of melancholy. You can awake from a wondrous dream only to realize that your life isn't what it was in the dream. You can awake from a nightmare and ponder what caused such bleak visions. Ultimately, our dreams and nightmares force us to confront some hidden inner part of ourselves. Is it any wonder that the experience can so often be unsettling? We'll begin this episode with a short poem from this season's muse, Edgar Allan Poe, a man synonymous with melancholy and dark introspection. His tortured mind caused him to ponder what so many others before and after him have pondered. Is our life, our experiences, all that we see and feel, actually real? Are we all part of some cosmic vision outside of our control? Think on these things as Jeff Clement performs Poe's contemplation on these themes. Is this all a dream within a dream? Take this kiss upon brow, and in parting from you now, thus let me avow. You are not wrong who deem that my days have been a dream. Yet if hope has flown away in a night or in a day, or in a vision or in none, is it therefore the less gone? All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. I stand amid the roar of a surf-tormented shore, and I hold within my hand grains of the golden sand. How few, yet how they creep through my fingers to the deep. 
while I weep, while I weep. O God, can I not grasp them with a tighter clasp? O God, can I not save one from the pitiless wave? Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? When experiencing the trauma of loss and grief, it can be easy to escape into a dreamlike world where the loss no longer exists, perhaps a form of therapeutic detachment. But in this tale, shared with us by author Graham Rosen, we meet a couple who want nothing more than their life to return to what it once was, and as the saying goes, be careful what you wish for. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Kristen DiMercurio, and Aaron Lillis. So if your grief is so profound, you may feel unable to ever change. Perhaps that's why Alice is still crying. Alice is still crying. I feel as if I could explode any minute. Not out of sadness, fury. Ollie's death was gruesome and fresh enough to throw her into fits. But I'm still angry. I want to punch something. I've heard about how marriages can fall apart when a child dies. Sometimes somebody does get punched. Sometimes somebody goes and gets fucked. But most of the time, they both end up leaving. We don't want that. We know that when we promised each other forever... We meant it, for better or worse. I have my fits of rage and shakes to get through. Alice is past that. She, at least, has her crying. Alice is no stranger to it. Her younger sister, Lori, died when she was only seven after being hit by a car. Alice once told me she had promised herself no more death after that. But she has broken that promise for Ollie, the things we do for our children. This evening, it is in the attic. Our upstairs room has one of those small doorways that leads to the attic. Small enough for a child to open and walk in. Small enough that an adult has to get down on their knees to enter. Only the penitent man will pass. We've been reorganizing after selling off Ollie's things. Something we were told would help heal. But if the check's in the mail, it hasn't arrived yet. I find myself curious why it's supposed to be healing to get rid of it all. Clothes, the toys, the sheets, the little bed. But then I find myself curious as to why anybody could want the constant reminder. It's been four and a half months, and no matter what we try, we fail. We failed. He's dead. I don't heal. I look at the pictures. That's all I do for hours. I drown myself in the past. At some point, the pictures are more real than any memories I have. Photographs and selfies of a family feeling whole. Whole. 
until something comes and cuts you apart. <sighs> Here comes that anger again. We haven't healed. And Alice is still crying. I tell her that I'll stay here for as long as she'll have me. That we can get through this. She's heard it all before. She usually appreciates them. Which is more than I can say from my words. They pass through. Leaving no evidence she heard them. I feel her tears drop on me for a few more minutes. Before I tell her she should rest while I make her dinner. I tell her that I love her. These words do leave a mark as her face moves to mine and she hugs me, but does not say it back. I take her to the bed and help to tuck her in, expecting to see her eyes, but she's already facing the window. She does that lately, just looks out. Whatever she's expecting to see, I'm not sure, but I would be lying if I didn't find myself occasionally staring out at the world. Expecting to see him again? No. I think it's the same feeling you have when you read an engaging story or play a thrilling game. Escape. Great adventure. Those things don't happen for us with books or movies anymore. But to look out and away? To let the light fall on your skin? To become one with the out there? That's the only way. I open the bedroom door and step out to make dinner. I turn back and see she is still facing the window. She is thinking of Ollie. She's thinking of Lori, allowing the final strokes of daylight to take her on her only chance for a great adventure. I will look back on this moment and wonder if, by now, he was already behind the attic door watching and waiting for us. Rain collapses. Our window holds darkness. We don't eat dinner. After three bites, I put it up in the fridge and step back into the bedroom, hoping to sleep. Alice is starting to fall asleep already, so I turn off the overhead and use my bedside lamp to read. It's a good book. I still haven't finished it. It makes the loneliness better. I finish another chapter when I hear a knock at the attic door. Not a bang, mind you. A gentle, two-piece, knock-knock. I turn toward the attic door. Silence. I turn toward Alice. She is awake and looks up at me. I had a dream. It happens again. We both jump up. I reach for the bat my father gave me, and immediately she rises off the bed, leading me to the attic door. I turn on the overhead, and we look at each other. We don't speak. We don't ask each other what we think it is be it something terrifying or ridiculous. Our fears of what it could be ride along with our doubt that it even exists in a two-seat car to the truth to see which one of them is right. This time is different, faster, not just peaceful, excited. She opens the door, immediately moving to the side as I ready the bat. A child excitedly climbs in, rising up from where it was sitting. It is wearing a burlap sack over its head, above a dark blue shirt and torn, dirty khakis. It looks at me, happy but curiously. It tilts its head, and I know it's wondering where Alice is. She is completely awestruck, seemingly scared but clearly worried. Once it feels her presence, it turns toward her. Seeing her delights it. 
No sound follows but the clapping of his hands as it leaps up and down from the carpeted floor. I kneel down as Alice makes her way past it to me and follows suit. We see as it sees, and the questions begin. Alice starts. Who are you? I follow up. What are you doing up here? It rushes at Alice and makes her jump when it throws its arms around her and buries its face into her neck, snuggling up. I see her face completely change as a tidal wave hits her chest. She is leveled as the bare minimum of motherhood rushes back to her. She is crying. It lets go of her and immediately turns to me. Its small hands wrap around my neck as the word boy finds its way into my head. It's a boy. He buries his face, shielding it, using me as protective film. In this moment, I remember the day Ollie was born. Three years ago, he was seven pounds, eight ounces. When I held him, it felt like an extension of myself, a part of me that couldn't be lost. But alas, here I am with a small child from the attic holding me. Instead of my own son, Alice turns to me, a look I haven't seen in months. The same look she gives me when we were 19, and she told me she always wanted to be a mother. It's what there is for me. I feel it in my bones. Before we can begin to figure out what is happening, he rises and stands in front of us. He dances around, elated. He claps his hands again. The question hits both of us, but only she starts to ask it. Are... are you... He stops dancing. Facing us, he tilts his head. Then he begins to back away, toward the attic door. Alice moves first, but I can't help myself as I move with her. She reaches out. Don't go. He stops, raising his hand up and waving it to himself. Come with me, his gesture says follow. We look at each other. There is a moment where I consider the strangeness, the queerness, the complete understanding that logic has gone out the window and insanity or death might be behind that door. But as I look at Alice, as I look at us, I see what happens if we stay here. I see how we succumb to our grief, how we fight each other until we give I see that we never recover from this. I see how we die. So, I reach my hand out and I wait for her to place hers there. When she does, I raise us both up and we follow the boy through the door. So, in a way, I suppose this is all my fault. And so the small boy with the burlap sack is leading two childless parents into a dark attic as the fairy tale begins. The light is off. I reach for the light switch. A hand touches me. It is Alice. She guides my hand away from the light switch as a mother guides her son from the outlet. Don't touch that, hun bun. Too dangerous. You'll fall. She turns me toward our little friend, who is now in the corner of the attic with a nightlight hovering over him. He looks up at us, and with all the fierce innocence of a newborn's sleepy gaze, he holds out a book to us. For the first time in minutes, Alice speaks. I think 
He wants us to read to him. Silence deafens. There is no dose of reality for me to hold on to at this moment. With our attic in darkness and this covered child beckoning us, I feel I should wonder if my sanity had broken. Our sanity. Ali died, and he took our minds with him. Well, let's read to him then. I am amazed at my confidence. Leftover dadisms that finally have an outlet. I never got to read to him. I never got to read to my boy. We sit down on either side of him. He snuggles in between us, and I find myself feeling comfortable. Alice begins to read. The book is Where the Wild Things Are, and I stumble into the potential irony of the title. This wild thing has found us. Is he wild? No. Simply a child. Ready to be loved. Speaking of that love, I find myself loving Alice more than I ever have before. Watching her read so carefully, making sure the child followed along with the words. She looks at her new boy with such pride. As the wild things begin to dance, so does he, bouncing up and moving his arms. He makes no noise, but the silence is still deafening. The joy is so palpable. We feel it in our bones. She continues the story. Everything happens so fast. After the dancing, the boy is tired. He moves towards us and lays on my lap, putting his thumb through the small slit in the sack he wears. Sucking his thumb, I feel his body move, weightless. Sleep is carrying him off. For the first time in months, I am crying. I feel fatherhood coursing through my veins. I feel every unsaid and undone thing in my life coming back. Here it is. A chance. A chance to be a father. This young boy is ours. It's clear, isn't it? It's clear as a window. Day. I know that if we hadn't left the window open, whoever this child is, he needs to be loved. He needs a father, a mother. He needs us. I hold him in my arms as Alice finishes the story. She looks at me, and for the first time in months, we are whole again. I begin to stand up, putting our boy around my shoulders, letting him sleep. I move towards the attic door and step out, still carrying him. As soon as he passes the threshold, he is awakened. He is gentle, but he unhooks himself from me and lets himself down. He shakes his head, no, and points to himself, then to the attic. I lean down and say, wouldn't you like to sleep in here with us? I am crying again, but Alice is not. She is still not crying. She is smiling. Don't leave, I'm thinking. Don't leave, please. He looks down, seeming to be sad. Then he looks at the attic again and points, following it up with another point at himself. He has to stay here. He can't leave. Alice is no longer smiling. Then, in one second, 
everything changes. He pops up and waves at both of us before running back into the attic, shutting the door behind him. We both charge at the door. I hear Alice before me. Wait, please. She opens the door first and rushes in. I follow suit. It's okay. Please, just stay. In the attic, we find nothing. No light, no book, no evidence of anything. I turn the light switch on to see clearer, and Alice turns to me with fury, as if I drove him away with the light, as if only the darkness held her dreams. I turn it back off as it's clear. We are alone again. I feel it again, the same way I felt when Ollie died. Something beautiful, something life-changing, something gone, so quickly that you can't even process. Were we dreaming? Was he even real? We step back into our bedroom, crouching under the attic door like children ourselves. If only we were still, back when things were simpler, when crying was no large encumbrance. What if he never comes back? What if he gave us this light only to take it away? At this moment with her, I wish it was a dream. I wish it all gone. I wish it never happened. It didn't help us. It made it worse. We are on the bed like before. Childless. Broken. Angry. Alice is still crying. A week went by. Sometimes I catch Alice in the attic. She is sitting and reading. I try to get her to come out. She refuses. She says she can hear him. If she listens closely, he is dancing. He is still dancing, waiting for her. We do nothing but the same routines. Anger, chores, fielding calls from loved ones checking in, canceling plans because we can't see any way to enjoy being out. We have to stay inside. What if he comes back? I am laying in bed at the end of the week, half remembering what happened and going back into my book. I haven't thought about Ollie in a few minutes. A few minutes of solace disappeared into some great other world. Alice is sleeping next to me. She has spent most of the day looking out of the window again. I know she is wishing. I hope for something truly good. Alice bolts up. She has been waiting. I know in my own small way that I have too. Can it be true? We both move over quickly to the door and open it. He is there. Thank God Almighty, he is there. He rushes into the room and hugs us both, dancing and rousing up a party with himself around the room before running back over to us and hugging us again. I feel it again. The rush. The love. But something is different this time. Something is wrong. I look down and pat his head. I tell him how much we missed him. I ask him if he is okay. He nods. Alice pulls him away from me and holds him close. Then she says it. I love you so much, Ollie. I am frozen. No. No. It can't be. I expect the boy to look confused. 
I expect him to step back and wonder at the new name. Instead, he moves his head back and kisses her cheek through the small slit in the sack that covers his face. The same face that hit the ground. We looked at every day until he was gone. I fall to my knees. The ground is heavy now that my weight is atop. The tears, they fall further than my knees. I look at him. When Ollie was born, he had two fingers missing. His ring finger and his pinky. I must not have looked last time, but I see his hands now, just as I remember. Ah, uh, Ollie? He looks at me, and I can see a small smile through the slit. It is only now that I notice his lips, big and purple, blackened teeth with heavenly shades of white, falling. It's twilight time. He moves towards me and hugs me, but... I can't describe it. I hug back, but can't believe it. It can't be. It simply can't be. And yet, it is. Funny how tears come for every occasion. She has exactly what she wants. But Alice is still crying. We read to Ollie again. After taking us back into the attic... He sits us down under his nightlight. This time the book is In the Night Kitchen, a classic from my childhood. We are halfway through the book, and he is snuggling up to both of us, when behind us, we hear it. We look at each other in confusion. Alice has stopped reading. We look down at Ollie, who is still with us. Ollie never left. Did he ever die? Who's that? Ollie pops up, the sack almost flying off his head. He claps his hands and dances over to the attic space behind us. Deep in the corner, he takes his nightlight with him and reveals a new door. A door in the back corner of our attic, smaller than the house's. A door that was not here when we moved in. He opens it. Another child rushes in, excited to see her friend. She hugs Ollie. She is wearing a bright silver mask, the kind that a masquerade ball would crown as the queen of the contest. It has horns and a long chin, all of it held by her long brown hair. Her hair is like Alice's. They dance and clap as Ollie points to us and nods to her. She nods back and they both rush over. The way he stands in front of us next to her, awkwardly fidgeting, he wants to introduce her. She stands behind him, looking nervous and frail. She wants to be liked. As soon as he moves aside, pointing his arms out to his friend in a grand welcome, she steps forward. Alice flies back to me, landing in my arms. Alice is breathing so heavily. I fear she's having a heart attack. She manages to speak. The girl bounces up into the air, excited and loving. She finally rushes to Alice and hugs her, putting her arms around me in the process. It is then that I realize they're here for her. They want Alice back. Alice sobs, <laughs> holding her dead sister in her arms. I love you so much. You, so, oh my God, how, 
finally moves himself in, hugging all of us. All four of us are linked. In that moment, death and life and grief and anger, all of it is gone. All that matters is love. I think that was the best. The best moment of it all. We read to both of them. They both fall asleep in our arms. For the first time, we sleep in the attic. They are gone in the morning, but that's just fine. We know they'll be back. We go out for the first time in weeks. We buy food, small mattresses and pillows and sheets. We buy more children's books. We run into Alice's friend Shirley at the store, and she is concerned, but overjoyed, seeing us buy new children's things. I, I'm so glad to see you trying again. I cannot smile. I cannot be honest. Alice does not miss a beat. Thank you so much. I think we really found what we needed. What we needed? Is this what we need? I don't know. But I do know that as soon as we saw another child, it changed. It's never been the same. After we make it back home, we move everything into the attic. And I ask Alice a question that's been aching at me all day. Is this right? Can we explain what is happening? It's so insane. All of it. She ignores me and continues making a bed for dead children. Honey, look at me. We've got to understand that whatever is happening here, it isn't meant to be. God help me, I love seeing them too. But this is wrong. She looks at me, half of her face lit by the open attic door. She finally speaks. It's wrong for God to take a child from loving arms. I've never had much patience for God, certainly not of late. I can't deny the irony of a believer thinking God's arms as taking, not loving. Alice, our purpose is not to... The attic door slams next to us, shrouding us in a cocoon of black. In the darkness, I hear another attic door open. The one in the corner. I hear footsteps. Many small footsteps. My heart feels as if it's stopped. I am waiting for the footsteps to stop as well. They draw closer. Eventually, a nightlight comes on. Ollie, in his sack, is holding his nightlight above him. Lori is next to him. So are a dozen other children. They all gather around Alice clapping and dancing and hugging. She smiles so widely, so perfectly that it looks like a Picasso. She is tilted in a wave of motherhood. These dozen children are waiting, faces hidden under masks, clothing, paintings, and blood, waiting for a story, waiting to be loved. Alice looks back at me. Our purpose is to be good parents. It's what there is for me. I feel it in my bones. Ollie is dead, I think to myself. But I can't say it. Not with him here. I feel miles away. So I simply sit and listen as she begins to read to the dead babies in desperate need of a mother. At that moment, 
I became one of them, wanting for Alice, wanting for my love back. Months, months of this. I come out of the attic occasionally to bring food in, to bring more books. Every time I come out, I am fielding more questions from loved ones. Why haven't you gone out? Why haven't you gone back to work? I know I can't tell them the truth. So I tell them we're working on a book and staying inside, rediscovering life, rediscovering our purpose. Sometimes I bring the phone in to Alice so that her family does not suspect she is in danger. She is so cheerful, so happy when she talks. It's wonderful to hear it in her voice, but you should see her face. Sunken, gray, fragile, bony. The dark circles under her eyes have moved so far down they may as well be her cheeks. Yet, through all of it, she smiles. She laughs. She is happier than I ever made her. She reads to them every night. They come through the back attic door and they gather round and they listen. They snack. They hug. They dance. They love. I sit and I try. I try to take part. In the morning they are always gone. And we spend all day waiting waiting for our purpose to come back to us. It gets harder and harder as the months go by. I wonder just what's behind that other attic door they come through. Where are they coming from? Now, occasionally, a child will come up to me, looking for comfort and hoping I'll play with them. On my best nights, I will cry, but I will still get up and play. On my worst nights, my angriest nights... I will softly scowl or even whisper, Get away from me. The look in their eyes, the fear, the innocence. God help me. It is so devastating. All they want is love. All they want is parents. But I can't help myself. This is evil. All of it. I have to tell her I'll have no part of it anymore. Tonight, I will tell her. The children are around her again. Lori and Ollie are always at her side. They are especially excited tonight. They have had Alice read her many books, always bringing them through that door in their little hands. The morning approaches. I am waiting for it to end, so I can tell her I am done. That we have to be done. This is goodbye. It must be. But as the final story is completed, Alice is still crying. She knows the night is coming to an end. She knows she'll have to wait again. She hates waiting. It's like losing her love all over again. She reaches out to all of them. I love you so much, you know. I love you so much. Then she says it. I want to go with you. I stand up. I am ready to stop this. I move toward them all. But then, I see them hug her. I see their little hands hold each other together. I focus on Ollie. I focus on my child's hands. Just as I remember them. 
just as I saw him in pictures for months, with all of his birthmarks and his ring and pinky missing on his right hand. Pause. Ollie's fingers were missing on his left hand, not his right. I look closely. I need to be sure. I am sure. His missing fingers are on the wrong hand. I dart towards the children. I pull at Alice. Come on, now. She forces my hand back and screams. Let go of me. What are you doing? I point at the child. That is not Ollie. Honey, look at me. Whatever is happening here, we have to go. She looks at me with all the fury of a volcano, finally erupting after months of seething hatred. How dare you? How dare you try and take this away? I grab the boy as he tries to fight me off of him. I hold out his hand. Look at it, honey. Look. Ollie's fingers were missing on his other hand. Whatever this thing is, it's not Ollie. All of these things... I put the boy down hard and he cries, a terrible breaking sound that penetrates our ears. I have to scream. I have to scream to be heard. These things are not what we think. These things are sucking out everything good in you, everything that you used to be. Alice is comforting the boy, holding him close. She is whispering. I hear words like worry and everything, okay, and never hurt. And again, I am weeping now. Honey, I know. Believe me, I want him back too. I want all of them back. I want every dead child taken from a loving place to be back here and safe with people who love them. But I want you back. I want the woman I love back. I want to have a real child. I want to have a real life. Not this. Christ Alice, not this, not these things. She turns to face me. The Ollie thing has stopped crying. She stands up, holding his lying hand. The lorry thing moves to her side. The childlike things gather around my wife, protecting her from me. She is looking at me as if I were a stranger. Before I know it, in my heart... I see I have lost everything. She speaks calmly, purposefully. These things are my children. They are real. They are my heart. This is a real life. The best I've ever had. I move to the Ollie thing and I rip the sack off its head. What I see makes me fly back in terror. A mangled, smashed face purple and blackened, dried blood covering it, bone shards sticking out of its temple, a mangled eye falling down onto its cheek, tears streaming down its face, falling past a quivering purple lip. The face of a young boy whose parents left the window open, the young boy who fell to his death and smashed himself on the concrete. The young boy who found a way back to the parents he so loved, watching one parent love him and another completely reject him. It was the mangled, broken face 
of my dead Ollie. I scream. I don't know if it is fear or sadness. I think it's a mix of both. I love him so. I love him so much. The other children things took their covers off. Lori's face contorted by the car that hit her. Another whose throat had been cut. One covered in bruises. All of them children met with things children should never be met with. In the middle of a group of mangled, dead children stood my wife, Alice, not crying, but most assuredly broken as she looked into my eyes. The hidden back attic door opens. Hundreds of small, outstretched hands reach inside from the darkness as the children move towards it. They all step inside until all that is left is Ollie, Lori, and Alice. Alice speaks. This is my purpose. I'm not going to let you take it away from me. I cannot move. I cannot speak. All I can do is stare. Stare as everything I love, broken or not, walks away from me. Lori leads Alice into the door, and they fall into the outstretched hands of something resembling children. Ollie looks back at me. It seems as if he is wishing I could go with him. I think he forgave me. God help me, I hope he did. Terrible to say, but I hope he did. I am not sure if it really is him. I do know one thing. Those tears are real. He finally turns away from me. A quivering purple lip leading his head down. He steps into the door and he closes it behind him. As soon as he does that, the door disappears. I am alone. I am still alone. I have not gone anywhere. Authorities have tried to look for Alice. No doubt I am the prime suspect. They still believe I'm hiding something. Both the cops and her family. But with no evidence linking me to any sort of violence, they have nothing to charge me with. They seem to believe my tears when I weep and say I want her back. One day I go through Ollie's things. I'm feeling nostalgic. Eventually I fall back into looking at pictures on my phone. I find a picture of him. A selfie the three of us took together. So beautiful. His fingers are missing on his left hand. As I remembered, I was right. Then I noticed something on Alice. Her necklace. Alice's necklace in the picture is reversed. The picture is mirrored. All of the selfie pictures on my phone are mirrored. His missing fingers. I looked at the pictures for so long, they invaded my memories. His right hand. Those were the missing fingers. I weep again. I've moved far past anger. At least I have my crying. At least I have that. I lay on the bed and stare out the window now, mostly. There is nowhere for me to go. I try to read. Sometimes I'll read aloud, if I'm feeling up for it. Sometimes I'll go into the attic and sit and read. Sometimes I'll sleep there. I am waiting. I am hoping for them to come back. But I know they won't. The worst of it is, I don't think it's a good place they went to. Because you see, when I am in the attic, 
I can hear them. I hear the clapping, the dancing. I hear Alice reading. I hear her voice, and I search. I search for the back attic door, but it's not there. It never will be. I am left alone only to hear. But that's just it. I hear other things, too. I feel them. Pain. Anguish. Hate. A window that stares back with only darkness. I know it has to be bad, you see. The place they're in. The place they took her. Because if I listen close enough, I can hear it. Alice is still crying. When we look to the past, we can so often fall into the mistaken belief that those were the good old times. Times when things seemed easier and simply better than they are now. And as we'll learn in this tale, shared with us by author Jack Cade, reminders in the form of old family movies spur one man to long for the good old times, a longing most profound. Performing this tale are Erica Sanderson, David Alt, and Penny Scott Andrews. So try not to get lost in the past. Those feelings are fleeting, especially when you transform picture to sound. The attic was cold and dark, as they had expected it to be. The creeping damp that had started in the downstairs bathroom had clearly worked its way up here, and the air was pungent with it, like the smell of wet newspapers. As for the lights, the bulbs must have blown out years ago. In their mother's little semi-detached house on the edge of Upminster, Eric and his sister were tidying up the place before a visit from the surveyors the following week. Cleaning out the house had been slow going, and sometimes it felt like they'd barely scratched the surface. Their mum had clearly become a hoarder before she'd been moved to a care home, and they'd had to hire an extra bin from the council to accommodate all the rubbish. Now all that was left to clear out was the attic. As Eric fiddled with the electric torch, he called to his sister, who was downstairs sorting through a pile of unopened letters in the sitting room. Are you sure she said she kept them up here? Or was it on top of the wardrobe next to the hat boxes? Eric waited perched precariously on the ladder that led up to the attic door. He sneezed as clouds of dust that had lain undisturbed for decades began to stir above his head, cascading out of the gloom in shimmering grey clouds. Steadying himself, he wiped a grimy shirt across his nose. His sister, leaning over the banister, called back up to him. It's definitely there, she said. Then again, you can't quite take a word for anything these days. If you can't find them... They might have been chucked out with the rest of the clutter. His sister had driven over from Oxford, as she had done every Saturday for the past eight months while their mother was in care. Being away from her partner and their two small children every weekend was beginning to wear her out, but she tried not to let it show. Eric lived in Elm Park, just a brisk walk away from the house they had grown up in. 
Still, it was his sister who made the most effort to visit their mother as often as she could. Though nowadays the old woman's memory was so distant and elusive, she regarded Eric and his sister as complete strangers. Eric muttered irritably and stuck his head up into the open cavity of the attic, shining the beam of the torch over heaps of detritus. All this junk that had been stowed away in the hopes of what exactly? That one day they'd find a use for it all? Their parents' divorce had been over thirty years ago, but still their shared past managed to cohabit this space. Their mum had kept the house after Dad ran off with his bit on the side, but clearly she could never bring herself to open the attic full of memories. After a bit of digging around, it didn't take Eric too long to find the box he'd been looking for. It was marked Family Memories and lay underneath an old raincoat and a box of Christmas decorations from several decades ago. It had been labelled in his mother's handwriting, her sensible yet oddly comforting penmanship unmistakable in the light of his torch. Eric felt a single tingle of remorse flow through him as he stared at the box, its cardboard chewed away at the edges by time and neglect. He almost wanted to leave it here, to keep it hidden away with the rest of these broken artefacts. Telling himself it was the dust that made his eyes start to water, Eric gripped the little electric torch between his teeth, lifted the box, and carried it back towards the attic door. When he finally appeared downstairs, his sister Susan was sitting on the sofa next to a mound of open envelopes and wreaths of months-old letters. These bills must have been sitting here since last year. No wonder they switched the heating and the lecky off after that. Well, did you find them? Susan looked up expectantly at Eric. Though they were both now middle-aged, she still took on the role of big sister, and the tone in her voice was one of gentle yet firm authority. She rolled up the sleeves of her fleece jumper and sat back into the soft embrace of the couch, waiting for Eric's reply. Eric put the old box on top of the coffee table, its grey film of dust smudging the edges of the wood. The sitting room, like the rest of the house, was a time capsule from their early childhood, with its faded shag carpet the colour of a sunset and the old analogue television that was housed in a wooden stand. It appeared that while the outside world had moved on, the inside of their mother's house had stayed resolutely in place. Eric wiped his hands on the back of his jeans and leant against the doorframe. I think so. I couldn't bring myself to have a look. Do you mind? <sighs> Always the big sister then, I suppose. Susan leant over towards the box. She peeled back folds of musty cardboard and packing tape dry as snakeskin and peered inside. Reaching in, she came up with a handful of brittle brown ribbons. Eric gasped. Whoa. Is that the old Super 8 film Dad used? Bloody hell. I'm amazed it's still in one piece. Susan dug deeper, pulling up handfuls of the stuff, some attached to plastic spools marked with faded, spidery lettering. Summer in Wales, 76. Grand and Grandad's anniversary, 79, Birmingham. Eric joined his sister on the sofa, picking through this bird's nest of faint recollections. Holding a few lengths of the film up to the sitting room light, he saw the dark afterimage of the very house they were sitting in now. It had been preserved, frame by frame like an insect in amber. There was the figure of Susan, back when she was in nursery school, toddling across the garden path towards their mother's outstretched arms. Such soft, warm days they had been once. Back in the present, Susan settled back into the sofa and rubbed her fingers under tired eyes. There were flecks of grey in amongst the mousy brown of her hair, and much like their father, she had begun to develop a small knot of worry lines across her forehead as she crept closer to turning fifty. 
Eric was only six years behind her, and the ever-expanding bald patch at the back of his head reminded him that those golden days of summer were far behind them. Well, that settles it then. Mum must have chucked out the wedding photos after Dad left. I guess we don't even have a record of that anymore. Susan yawned and looked up at her brother, his jeans stained grey with dust. Well then, what are we going to do with all this rubbish? I can't take it home with me, and I doubt the charity shop will have it. Eric scratched at the patch of stubble on his chin and shrugged. I don't know, but I'm sure I can find a use for it. Eric finally set the projector up in the living room, like they had done in the old days, back when the family was still in one piece. He had found it under a pile of bed linen in the airing cupboard, a little worse for wear but still working. Clearly, something had saved the projector from being banished to the attic with the rest of the rubbish. Though Eric couldn't see his mum being too sentimental about this clunky beast of obsolete technology. After all, the projector had always been their dad's pride and joy. Who would have thought she would hang on to it after everything they had been through? The memories of the divorce were still a painful, suffocating weight in the back of Eric's mind. He'd always wanted to go with his dad after the separation, but the new girlfriend wasn't interested in looking after kids. So he'd had to settle for awkward phone calls on his birthday, Christmas, and the occasional New Year's Eve until he'd left for university. Perhaps with these newly discovered films, Eric could return to a time before life became messy and distant. Susan left him to it, dropping the house keys in a glass bowl beside the door as she went. I'm going to see Mum at the care home next weekend. Will you be making an appearance, or shall I make the usual excuses? He replied non-committally, which surprised neither of them. He only ever met with their mum under duress, and even at the best of times they were total strangers to one another. Eric heard his sister sigh, shutting the front door behind her. As he heard Susan's footsteps down the path, Eric leant over to the projector and flicked a lever marked play. A pool of lights began to flicker on the dimpled off-white surface of the sitting room wall. The numbers one, two, three, four scuttled past marked the beginning of the reel, and in an instant, Eric was pulled right back to early childhood. There was his first Christmas, played back with muted reds and emerald green flashes of blinking fairy lights. His grandparents' anniversary party summer holidays in Wales, and picnics on the beach. In these blissful reminiscences, the sun was always shining, and the people always smiling. In fact, what struck Eric most of all was just how happy everyone looked, how young his parents were, how carefree and unaware of events that lay in the not-so-distant future, events that would schism this happy family forever. Eric sat through the night, feeding loop after loop of film into the projector's aperture. Some of the film stock was damaged beyond repair, but he played it anyway, as events from his life returned to him in waves. Eric hadn't been this happy in quite some time. He hadn't found the need or inclination to build much of a life for himself since he'd left college, staying more or less in one place, geographically and emotionally, for all of his 44 years. Working in the student admin block at the college in Dagnum was just that. Work and the few friends he'd made in his time at school had all gone off and started families of their own. Some of his friends' kids had been having kids of their own. All in all, he lived a quiet, hollow life. Eric had always had a melancholy side to him. He'd been accused of living in the past too often, always trying to imagine what might have been. He had dwelt endlessly over his parents' divorce when he was 14, 
and later their father's death from lung cancer. Though in some ways the past was a safer place to inhabit. At least you knew what was going to happen next. As he watched the images dance across the projector's lens, Eric recalled someone once saying that movies were a kind of haunting. These were the ghosts of our past, trapped forever in an artificial yet slowly degrading feedback loop. The people and places we recall in dreams brought back by an alchemical equation of light and celluloid. Still, he let it all wash over him, this salve of nostalgia and comfort, playing and rewinding repeatedly. The following day, Eric played the films to his sister. She arrived early to sort through the last of their mother's unpaid bills and was shocked to see him still sitting where she'd left him. With the sitting room curtains drawn shut to block out the early morning light, Eric heard her sniffle into a tissue once he'd played it all through for her. As the last reel ended, Susan flicked on the lights and put her hand tentatively on Eric's shoulder. He reached up and held it in a clumsy embrace as the gentle whirl of the finished film reel slowly wound itself to a stop. You know, you really should come and visit her. Even if she isn't all there anymore, she'd still appreciate the company. Eric paused, slowly pulled his hand away from Susan's reassuring touch. There's no point... She wouldn't recognize me, and she barely knows who you are either. I really don't know why you punish yourself like that, seeing her every weekend. It's like visiting the grave of someone who's still alive. Susan fought back the tears as she slapped Eric across his broad, sullen shoulders. I do it because you won't do it with me. Because I don't blame her for Dad leaving us. And this... She gestured to the dusty box of Super 8 reels beside the sofa won't bring him back to life. It won't fix what happened to their marriage, and it can't rewrite history. She slammed the front door as she left. In the gloom of the sitting room, Eric sat there, his shoulders sagging and his eyes feeling cracked and dry from lack of sleep. He hadn't showered since they got there last Friday, and his hair was becoming lank from sweat. He was hungry too, and his throat felt parched. Despite this, he leant over towards the old box of memories and with careful hands, fed the tape back into the machine. He hit the switch marked play and resumed his glorious seance. He stayed in the house for another week, which became two, then a month. He cancelled the visit from the surveyors and the estate agents. He called in sick to work and left no forwarding details. Susan began visiting less now, preoccupied enough with work and family to be looking after him as well. Eric preferred it this way. Alone in the house, he had time to appreciate and savour the past. He found ten more models of the same maker projector on an online auction site, and within an hour he'd bought them all. He ordered them to be delivered to the house the next day, and was almost sick with nerves while he waited for their arrival. Once they were correctly set up, he had every room wired up to act as a viewing area using old bed linens taped over walls at odd angles to accommodate the bends and curves of the house. If the curtains let in too much glare, he painted over the windows in emulsion. If the furniture was in the way of the beam, he tossed it in the garden. It had to be perfect. All of it. Light soon flickered on every bare patch of wall, as the golden years of Eric's childhood were played again and again, like burning windows into his past. He would walk from room to room, out into one day and into another, past year to year, season to season, always the same and never growing old. 
It was not long after that that he began to hear the voices. Susan had been dumbstruck when she returned from a bank holiday weekend with her partner and their kids. What the fuck is wrong with you? Are you diseased? She tried to peel off the bedsheets from the wall and tear up wires that crisscrossed floors like lee lines. Eric tried to reason with her. You don't understand. Just stop and listen. Can you hear it? Just listen. Eric held his sister's trembling shoulders with both hands. His eyes looked like they had been burrowed into his head, and his skin was almost grey from lack of sunlight. He stared into her, trying to make her understand. He could hear it. Why couldn't she? Upstairs in the bedroom was the sound of his mother's laughter. Her birthday, 1967. In the kitchen, the murmur of an audience watching their nativity play at the old school, 1979. And amid it all, his father's voice, punctuated by the smoker's laugh that had been his uncanny vocal signature. The family always said that he'd been too fond of his woodbines, and it was what had taken him from them in the end. Susan stared in disbelief for what felt like an age. She shrugged him off and began backing towards the front door. You're cracking up, Eric. All I can hear is those bloody projectors spinning away in every room. I'm gonna ring up the local hospital, see if they can get an intervention team out or something. Susan felt lost, unsure how to reason with this pale wraith that her brother had become. This isn't healthy. When was the last time you slept? Your skin is... She looked curiously at Eric for a beat, then gasped. She turned and ran out the open front door, not stopping until she reached her car parked outside. Eric reached out weakly to her, his voice barely a whisper. Wait. Come back. If you just stay. The hall was silent. The light that poured through the open front door was too bright, burning through the house's shadows like pale fire. Eric shuffled forward to close it. He noticed that his hand passed through the daylight, grey and indistinct as if all the colour was fading through his skin. He chose to ignore it and shut the front door behind him. In his last few hours, the sensations he felt were blissful. Endorphins flooded him as he walked through the empty house. No, not empty. Not really. He felt that light was beginning to pass through him, barely refracting as it went. He left no shadow on the walls. Perhaps he was part of the lantern show now, his soul bound in its celluloid. He looked at the sitting room wall, at a scene he knew all too well. He watched, eyes blank and white as bone, as his family crowded together around a picnic table in a field near Patheli. It must have been when Susan started secondary school, four years before their dad left them. God, they all looked so happy. He wished he could join them. He could smell the fresh country air, the sound of wind through trees and children's laughter, a radio playing from a car somewhere. His mother had a young child balanced on her knee and fussed over its dark, curly hair shock. Eric recognised the child had been him once. Perhaps. Eric took a step into the flickering rainbow of light. He could feel the warmth of midsummer on his skin and his bare feet touched cool grass. It would only take a second if he could just disappear, if he could walk through the image and join them. He reached out to touch the past and the light slowly embraced him. The projectors soon wound down, one by one, as the films reached their end with no one to reset them. 
The beams flickered out and died. It was cool, dark and quiet in the house at long last. And in the sitting room, where it had all started, a twitching shadow the size of a man stirred on the wall before dissipating out of existence like an ink smudge in water. There was a flutter of brief, happy laughter, as if heard from a place far away. Then silence. Susan sat in her car, just outside a service station on the motorway, her mobile phone clasped in one hand and the steering wheel in the other. The hospital had put her on hold for over 45 minutes now, and she was considering phoning the police soon. Eric was sick, and maybe even a danger to himself. He'd been depressed for a while, she'd known that well enough. But this was different. It seemed to hang over him like a heavy, leaden cloud. The only thing she couldn't rationalise... The thing that had made her stomach turn was how heartbreakingly frail he had appeared to be. His skin seemed almost transparent. It must have been the light in the house that made it look like that. She was tired, lonely, and she missed her brother, wherever he was now. The phone line to the hospital still beeped interminably, and she eventually put it on the dashboard, the hope slowly draining out of her. Susan rested her head on the steering wheel, resisting the urge to scream. She had heard something in the house when Eric held her in his thin, cold arms. It had only been for a moment, and was almost barely audible over Eric's heavy breathing. But it was there, just one brief, shallow sigh that seemed to be coming from the house itself, like the last dying breaths of someone you once loved. Waking from a nightmare can feel like an enormous relief. The horrors aren't actually real, are they? But in this tale, shared with us by author C. Rose, we meet a woman whose nightmare feels more like a premonition. If only she could find out how to prevent what she experienced in her sleep. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Kyle Akers, Jeff Clement, Atticus Jackson, and Aaron Lillis. So when you feel so compelled to try to change something, to prevent a tragedy, you really have no choice. You must try, try again. Alex came home from work looking pretty rough. He had taken my car to work so that he could get the brakes changed on his way home, since the shop was closer to his job, but forgot. He looked so worn out, I decided to go instead. He smiled a tired smile and offered to make dinner while I was gone. I kissed him on my way out the door, calling back to him that I wanted to hear all about his day over dinner. The shop was busier than I thought it would be on a Tuesday evening. They didn't even get to my car for 45 minutes. Mike who was working the counter, apologized repeatedly and bought me a soda from the machine. Alex and I had been coming here since before we were married, and we knew almost everyone. After an hour and a half, the car was ready. Mike and I chatted for a few minutes more in between customers, which were dwindling because it was almost closing time. 
Then I texted Alex to say I was on my way. As I pulled into our neighborhood, I could see smoke rising. The little wave of panic that I think everyone gets washed over me as I thought, please, not my house. I slowed as I approached our street, noticing that I was getting closer to the source. I hadn't even realized that I was holding my breath until this point, when I began to breathe heavily. I turned the corner and looked in horror at the flames engulfing my house. I slammed the car into park and frantically scanned the crowd for Alex, calling out for him. My neighbors wouldn't meet my gaze. One of the firefighters came to speak to me, but I didn't hear a word he said, because the next thing I saw was Alex's badly burnt body being carried out of the house. I pushed past the guy in my face and rushed over to him. But something in me knew he was gone before I got close and was pulled back by a firefighter. What happened next was a blur. They took Alex to the hospital and an officer followed, with me curled up in the back seat, weeping silently for my husband. A couple officers spoke to me and offered to call someone for me, but I couldn't find it in me to respond to them. I sat hugging my knees for a long time and didn't even realize I was falling asleep. Day 1, Tuesday, September 12th. I awoke with a start, breathing heavily and covered in sweat. The nightmare had been so vivid and real, I struggled to figure out my surroundings. When I made it out of my sleep fog enough to feel Alex beside me, still snoring softly, I sighed deeply with relief. I spent a few moments calming down and enjoying his presence beside me before I decided to put the nightmare out of my head and get up for work. I did my morning yoga and showered and was already dressed before Alex got up, like every morning. He did IT for the local hospital and I was a teacher, so I almost always went to work earlier than he did. Alex got out of bed as I was getting ready to head toward the kitchen for breakfast. He came over and wrapped his arms around me. I breathed in his scent, feeling a little calmer being so close to him. I told him about my nightmare, trying to sound as if I was brushing it off, but it was still there in the back of my mind. He understood how upsetting it was and squeezed me a little tighter for a moment, before I assured him I was okay, that it was just a bad dream. I smiled and kissed him before we parted to continue getting ready. The rest of the morning went relatively smoothly, even though I kept getting feelings of deja vu. Alex was going to take my car to work so that he could get the brakes changed on his way home, so I drove his car that day. He was so much taller than me that I nearly spilled my coffee on myself getting into the car because the seat was so far back. Driving to work, I got stuck behind an incredibly slow minivan for a few miles. Once I got to work, one of my students got a heavy nosebleed shortly after I started my lesson, so I had to stop and make sure she got to the nurse's office, then called the custodian to clean up the blood. One of the faculty members picked up pizza for the department meeting, so I stashed my lunch in the fridge for the next day. And on the way to the bathroom towards the end of the day, I got hit on by the sleazy music teacher. All of these little occurrences gave me a somewhat jarring feeling of deja vu. I left work and headed home. Once I got in, I took the dog for a walk, 
Then went to the office Alex and I shared to do some grading and work on my lesson plans for the math unit I would be starting the following week. As I worked, my nightmares started to creep back into my mind, sending a shiver down my spine. By then, the memory was less sharp, but no less upsetting. I was going to shoot a quick, affectionate text to Alex so that his response would make me feel better, but was distracted by the doorbell. It was a UPS delivery with the leather jacket I had ordered for Alex's birthday. He would be 32 in two weeks. I quickly took it out to inspect it, then hid it away to be wrapped later. Satisfied with my gift choice, I settled back into the office to get a little more done before going to start dinner. I had just gotten the cutting board and vegetables out when I heard the garage door opening. Alex was earlier than I expected him to be. I wondered how he'd had the time to stop at the shop. He walked in, looking pretty rough. He came in to kiss me hello. Then he must have realized that he forgot about the brakes. He looked so weary as he moved to put his jacket back on that I simply smiled at him and told him that I would do it instead. He looked relieved and thanked me. As I went to the garage, he told me he would finish making dinner. On my way out the door, I called back to him to tell him that I wanted to hear all about his day when I got back. They took longer at the shop than I thought they would. It was surprisingly busy for a Tuesday evening. I chatted with Mike, who worked there while they worked on my car. Alex and I had been going to that shop since before we were married, and we knew almost everyone. They finally finished with my car an hour and a half later, and I headed back home. As I drove, I got an incredibly eerie feeling, and my nightmare crept back into my mind. I tried to push it from my thoughts, but I wasn't able to. I noticed that I was fidgeting as I drove because I was so nervous. I forced myself to chuckle at the thought. I was just being silly. But then, as I turned into our neighborhood, I saw smoke, and my entire body went cold. Dear God, no. My mouth went dry, and my hands began to shake as I approached the street and turned the final corner to see our burning house. I fumbled with the gear shift, finally got the car in park, and ran out into the crowd of neighbors that were gathered in the street. I scanned the crowd for Alex. Then my stomach dropped when I saw him being carried out of the house. He was badly burned. I pushed past the firefighter that had stopped to talk to me and rushed over to Alex. I almost anticipated being grabbed and held back by the firefighter as I got closer and realized that he was gone. I vaguely remember being taken to the hospital and being spoken to by officers. My mind was too far away to respond to them. Finally, they left me alone, presumably to call someone for me and I started to drift off to sleep with something nagging the edge of my consciousness that this all felt horribly familiar. Day 2, Tuesday, September 12th. I was terrified when I woke up. My mouth was dry, and I was covered in sweat. I struggled to figure out where I was and where Alex was, when I came to the realization that we were both in bed together, I knew I should be relieved, but I was still freaked out. 
There were so many thoughts racing around in my head about my nightmare, but also fuzzy thoughts about the day before. I remembered the terror, the fire, the despair. Or was that still the dream? I got up and paced the floor for a few moments, trying to make sense of everything in my head. Our dog, Dante, watched me from his bed in the corner. I stared at Alex, sound asleep and peaceful looking, and a strong, ominous feeling came over me, and I had to wake him up. I went over to him, calling his name and shaking him. He jolted awake, confused and asking what was going on. My distress must have been obvious because once he was able to focus on my face, his confusion shifted to concern and he asked what was wrong. I told him about what had happened and what I was thinking. My thoughts came out in a jumbled mess and I could see that he was struggling to keep up and make sense of it all. So you're having a recurring nightmare about me dying in a fire? His brow furrowed as he tried to make sense of my word vomit. I shook my head, feeling overwhelmed and shaking as I tried to make sense to even myself. No, it's more like the nightmare repeated within the nightmare. He nodded thoughtfully, and I hoped he wouldn't try to compare it to that DiCaprio movie that I'd never gotten around to watching. I guess he was still too tired to try being witty, because he didn't make the joke and gently caressed my cheek instead. He told me that he was sorry that I'd had such a terrible nightmare, but that he was okay, and that this was reality, not a dream. I tried to let that calm me down, but just couldn't seem to shake off my anxiety. I leaned forward to kiss his forehead and went to let Dante outside, then hopped in the shower. It wasn't until I was halfway through my shower that I realized that I skipped my morning yoga, but figured I wouldn't have been able to focus on it anyway. I was so distracted that I grabbed my conditioner instead of my body wash and only realized my mistake when I saw a thick, creamy blob on my loofah instead of my gold-hued gel. I sighed and tried to drive the nightmare from my mind so that I could start my day. When I finished in the bathroom, Alex was waiting outside of the door for me. He pulled me into his arms and I clung to him, appreciating his warmth and familiar scent. He gently massaged my scalp how I like, and I nearly teared up at the gesture. Don't worry about me. I'm not going anywhere. I promise. I love you, honey. I gave his midsection a squeeze as he kissed my forehead. I love you too. He gave me one last gentle squeeze, then let go. I smiled at him, feeling a bit calmer, then finished getting ready for work. I let Dante back inside for his breakfast, and as I was grabbing my keys to leave, Alex reminded me that he was taking my car to work today. We'd planned last night for him to take my car to get the brakes changed after he left work while I made dinner. The nightmare flashed in my head, and I hesitated. You know, honey, I think I'll just take my car to Mike's today. Would you mind starting dinner for me? Uh, sure. 
That works. Fajitas tonight, right? Yep. I'll see you later. Have a good day. Love you. Love you too. I felt a bit of relief driving to work, like I had gotten the day on the right track. Remembering the dream, I took an alternative route to work and ended up shaving a good ten minutes off of my commute time. I had time to ease into the workday and chat with my colleague in the classroom across the hall for a bit. Shortly after the school day started, one of my students got a heavy nosebleed, and I had to pause my lesson to escort her to the nurse's office. I had the teacher across the hall keep an eye on my class while I did, and the paraprofessional she worked with stayed with her students. Once I got my students safely to the nurse's office and returned to my classroom, I put in a request for the custodian to clean up the blood. Getting the class back on track after that was a challenge, but we managed, and the day went pretty smoothly from there. We had a department meeting while the students had gym, and one of the other faculty members surprised us with pizza. I guiltily stashed my salad in the teacher's lounge fridge to have the next day. Later on, while my students worked on an assignment, I popped out quickly to use the restroom and, unfortunately, ran into Ed Carmine, the sleazy music teacher. Well, hey there, Camille. You're looking really good today. Only thing you're missing is that pretty smile of yours. Sorry, Ed. Gotta run. I rushed past him without making eye contact. He said something in response, but I didn't pay it any attention. I felt my pulse quicken a bit as I made it to the restroom, remembering the nightmare. Had Ed said the same thing to me in my dream? I couldn't remember. After work, I nearly started to head home before I remembered to go to Mike's. I was waiting for my car to be taken back for servicing when Alex called me. Hey, uh, you've got a package here. Where do you want me to put it? I could hear Dante's impatient barking in the background and the jingle of the leash. Alex must have just gotten home and was getting ready to take Dante out. You can just leave it on my desk, I told him realizing that it was his birthday present. His birthday was coming up in a couple weeks, and I'd ordered him a leather jacket for his gift. Okay. How's the wait at Mike? Do you know when you'll be home? Just as I was about to respond, I saw someone pull my car into the service bay. They're taking it back now. It shouldn't be too long. All right. See you soon. We hung up, and I sat checking my emails and browsing social media while the techs worked on my car. As the minutes ticked by, I started to feel some anxiety creeping in. I peeked at the clock. 5.47 p.m. Shortly after, my car was finished, and Mike came out to hand me my keys. We chatted a bit while I paid for the service, then I headed home. I felt like I needed to rush back, if only to prove to myself that everything was fine. I fidgeted the whole ride, bouncing my leg, tugging at my curls, picking at my cuticles. As I approached our neighborhood, 
I thought I could see a haze of smoke in the distance, but laughed it off. I'm just being silly. Still, I felt a weight in my chest and hesitated as I turned into the neighborhood. I wasn't being silly. There really was smoke. Dear God, no. I crept along the route to our home, feeling sweat begin to bead at my temples. My mouth felt as if it were filled with wool. I blinked away tears as I got closer to my house, realizing that the smoke was getting thicker. When I turned onto my street, I saw what I knew would be there. Our house. The house we'd bought a month before our wedding. The house we welcomed Dante into when he was just three months old. The house we hoped to raise a family in. Was engulfed in flames. Somehow, I managed to get the car into park and stumbled toward our lawn. Between my tears and the smoke, I could barely see. I collapsed to my knees on the sidewalk when I saw the stretcher. A police officer noticed me and came over to speak to me, but it sounded as if I were underwater. I just stared, feeling my world collapsing in front of my eyes. I struggled to breathe as I felt hands lift me up and guide me to a car. I was taken to the hospital, and I was dimly aware of being spoken to by the police officer and at some point, a doctor. I have no idea what was said to me. But at some point, exhaustion took over. Day 3, Tuesday, September 12th. I woke up to soft whimpering and a wet nose nudging at my hand. I opened my eyes to see Dante looking concerned. A look at the bedsheets around me told me I must have been tossing and turning heavily. Since I'm usually a pretty sound sleeper... He must have gotten worried that something was wrong. As I petted his head to reassure him, I felt a wave of emotion wash over me and began to cry. The tears fell softly at first, but they quickly turned into heavy sobs that I tried to keep quiet. I failed, and it woke Alex, who was immediately concerned. Hey, hey, What's the matter? He wrapped me in his arms, which only made me more emotional, and I was choking out sobs into his chest. He held me, gently rubbing my back for a long while until my sobs quieted and my breathing slowed. He didn't repeat his question, and instead waited patiently, quietly, until I could get myself together enough to speak. When I did, I told him everything about the horrible nightmare that I couldn't seem to escape. It had all felt so real, and I kept reliving such devastation. Oh, honey, that's awful. Alex held me tighter to him, and I buried my face in his chest, feeling fresh tears begin to fall. It was so awful to lose you and Dante. Three times. It's okay. We're here. As if to punctuate Alex's statement, 
Dante hopped up on the bed and lay in between us, gently nuzzling against my hip. I reached down to pet him, and the three of us lay together quietly for a few moments. I think I'm going to take a sick day today. I just want to stay home. I said, finally pulling away to wipe my face. Alex nodded. I'll stay home with you. I smiled a little. You don't have to do that. He smiled back at me and kissed me softly. I want to. It'll be nice to have a quiet day together. Besides, we had such a busy weekend. I think we deserve a break. I tried to remember what we had done over the weekend that kept us so busy, but it felt distant, even though it had been just a couple days ago. I called in to request a substitute for the day, and Alex got up to let Dante out, then emailed his job to let them know he would be taking a personal day. When he let Dante back in to have his breakfast, he returned to bed and made gentle love to me, whispering how much he loved me as we held each other closely. We ended up drifting back off to sleep afterwards, still in each other's arms, and didn't wake up again until nearly ten. We showered, and Alex went out to pick up something for breakfast for us while I took Dante for a leisurely walk, a treat for him on a weekday morning. When we got back, Alex and I ate our late breakfast in front of the TV, indulging in the show we'd been binging on Netflix while Dante lazily chewed one of his toys on the floor in front of us. Later, we gamed together for a bit, then I grabbed a book to read while he continued to play. As the afternoon slipped into evening, I started to get a little antsy. I knew it had been some time after five that the fire must have started. Around 4.45, I suggested that we take Dante to the park. Alex smiled and said he thought that was a great idea. We grabbed some tennis balls to toss to Dante at the park and headed out in Alex's car since the brakes on mine still needed to be replaced. Alex and I hung out at the park with Dante for over an hour, playing fetch with him in the open space and just enjoying each other's company. When we left, Alex suggested having dinner on the patio of one of our favorite local cafes, which I readily agreed to. Since it was a weekday evening, the cafe wasn't busy at all, and we got to have a nice, relaxing dinner together to cap off our easy day. I was feeling so relieved, especially since it was well after seven when we headed for home. In the dream, I left Mike's shop a little before six, and by the time I made the 15-minute drive back home, the house had been engulfed in flames. As we approached our neighborhood, I felt what seemed to be a familiar anxiety creep into my chest. But it couldn't really be familiar because it had all been a dream, right? I reached over for Alex's hand, and he took mine in his, giving it a gentle squeeze. I could have sworn I saw a haze of smoke in the distance. Navigating through the neighborhood, I know we both noticed that the haze wasn't leaving and that there were quite a bit of cars backed up. My grip on Alex's hand tightened and he leaned forward in his seat. We turned onto our street and saw our smoldering house. 
Alex threw the car in park, and I just sat, dumbfounded. A firefighter approached Alex as he walked towards the house. I turned and told Dante to stay as I went out to see what was going on. Your next-door neighbor called it in. Looks like an electrical fire. Seems to have started in the basement. Our best guess right now is that your HVAC unit malfunctioned and threw a spark, which caused something flammable down there to catch. You folks use that space for storage? Yeah. Our out-of-season clothes are down there. Uh, probably books, too. The man nodded. That'll do it. They talked for a few more minutes while I stared at what remained of our home. The thought occurred to me again. Maybe the dream was a premonition all along. Eventually, Alex came back over to me and said we were going to pick up some overnight essentials and then head to his parents' house. He'd already called them and asked if we could stay there for a bit. I nodded following him back to the car. After picking up the basics, like toothbrushes, clean underwear, and dog food, we headed to his parents' house, which was about half an hour away. When we got there, his mother and father came out and wrapped us both in a huge hug, telling us how relieved they were that we were okay. I smiled a little at this and felt relief myself. Even as Alex called and dealt with filing a claim for the fire damage, and I called out of work for the next several days, I felt happy. When Alex and I settled into his parents' guest room for the night, Dante on an oversized pillow at the foot of the bed, I felt overcome with emotion again. But this time, it was all positive. I kissed him and snuggled up close to him, telling him how happy I was that we were all safe and together. Even though we had lost so much, we still had each other. He held me close and agreed. Then we eventually drifted off to sleep. Day 4, Tuesday, September 12th. I reached for Alex without opening my eyes, still half asleep and wanting to be close to him. I felt the smooth skin of his back and scooted closer to him, resting my forehead against his shoulder. I lay with him a few moments longer, just enjoying the feeling of lying in bed with him and being together before I opened my eyes. I looked around the room, blinking in confusion, surprised to be in our bed, in our bedroom, instead of the cozy guest room at his parents' house. My brain struggled to piece together the previous day. Days? This can't be right. I turned over to check the date on my phone. September 12th. Again. But the fire was a premonition. I saved us. Dante yawned and stretched on his bed in the corner. I sat up in bed, trying to work out what was happening. It seemed I kept being given chances to do this day over, but if not to save Alex and Dante from the fire, 
Then why? Maybe this time, I can stop the fire from happening at all. That must be it. I got up and crept out of the room, Dante following me behind to be let out. We padded downstairs and I looked up numbers for HVAC service companies as I let Dante out the sliding glass door into the backyard. Only one of them was open this early, so I called them and made up a lie about an urgent problem with our HVAC unit, insisting that we needed someone to come out and inspect it today. The rep on the phone sighed and reluctantly told me that someone would be out that afternoon, between noon and 3 p.m. I confirmed that time with them, then called to request a sub at work. Feeling like something was finally going right, I let Dante back in to have his breakfast, then went to do my morning yoga routine, holding each asana for a few extra breaths since I had the time. By the time I went back upstairs to hop in the shower, Alex was up and heading toward the bathroom. Morning, honey. Do you need to shower first? Nah, you go ahead. I'm not going in today. Really? Why? Are you, are you feeling okay? I told you not to eat all that ice cream last night. <laughs> no, I called someone out to come look at the HVAC unit. There was a weird smell every time it kicked on. I lied. Oh, really? I hadn't noticed anything. Are you sure you didn't want me to stay instead? I could always work remotely today. That's okay. I already got a sub for my class. No worries. While Alex showered, I used the extra time to save him a few minutes. I packed his breakfast and lunch and put the kettle on for his morning cup of tea, taking out the milk and honey so it was ready for him to fix just the way he liked it. He came downstairs, adjusting his tie, and thanked me for helping him get ready for the day. I smiled and kissed him. Then we chatted lightly as he got all his stuff together and headed for the door, pausing at the key hooks. Did you still want me to get your brakes changed today? No, that's okay. I can always go after they come to check out the unit. He nodded and grabbed his own keys, gave me a kiss, and headed out the door. I sighed, then went upstairs to shower. I killed time until the technician came out by straightening up around the house, grabbing the book reports my students had turned in before the weekend, and clearing out the space around the HVAC unit. When the technician arrived, I led her to the basement and repeated my lie about the suspected issue with the unit and left her to work. Back upstairs, I found it hard to sit still, nervous energy blowing through me. What if there was no issue with the HVAC unit? What if it was another appliance altogether? What if I had to live through this day again? What if I was stuck reliving it forever? I held out for an hour, then went down to the basement to see what was going on under the guise of offering a glass of water. When I walked into the room, I saw part of the unit was taken apart and laid out neatly alongside it. The technician poked her head out from behind the unit when she heard me come in. So, did you find the problem? I held out the glass of water in offering to her. She accepted it and took a long drink. Ah, uh, thanks. Needed that. 
Yeah, it turns out there were a couple of old connections in here that were coming loose. It's a good thing we got it in time. Could have caused a fire. It shouldn't take too much longer to fix. She gave me a reassuring smile. I sighed, and a chuckle bubbled out of my throat as relief swelled in my chest. Wow, I'm so glad you were able to catch it before anything happened. Thank you. Yeah. She nodded and handed the glass back to me. Thanks again. Then went back to her work. I headed back upstairs, feeling light. When I got back upstairs, I texted Alex about what the technician had found, then collapsed onto the couch. I started to get emotional. Was the emotional turmoil of the nightmares or premonitions over? Had I corrected the wrong? Could we finally move on to Wednesday? Once the technician left, I took my car to Mike's to get the brakes replaced. The job went quickly since it was the middle of the afternoon. Then I decided to stop by our favorite local cafe to pick up some treats for after dinner. Once I got back home, I took Dante out for a nice long walk, then started dinner. Alex had had a rough day at work and told me about being called to provide support to a hospital administrator who made shitty jokes about Mexicans and illegals the whole time Alex was in his office. I'm not even fucking Mexican. If you're going to be racist, at least get the country, right? I reached across the table and patted his hand. This wasn't the first time someone at his job thought it was funny to make him the butt of their ignorant jokes, and, unfortunately, it wasn't likely to be the last. You know racists don't care about that, babe. To them, brown is brown. (sighs) Yeah, I know. Anyway... Good call on the HVAC unit. That could have been really bad. He gave me a little smile. Yeah, definitely. The technician said that it could have easily started a fire. I'm glad we got it taken care of. After dinner, he tidied up while I took a shower. Then, we settled in to watch a movie and dug into our pastries. Around ten... Alex went up to take a shower, and I let Dante out into the backyard one last time for the night, then headed up to bed. I settled into bed, sinking into the cool sheets and looking forward to the next day. I felt accomplished. I'd not only made sure that Alex and Dante were safe, but I saved our house in the process. I finally got it right, I thought. Everything is as it should be. Day 5, Tuesday, September 12th. I woke up feeling refreshed and rested, ready to start my day. My mind felt clear, and I was still riding a bit of a high from getting things right the day before. I got out of bed and went to let Dante out before I started my morning yoga routine. Afterwards, I let him back in and gave him his breakfast, then went to brush my teeth, grabbing my phone on the way to the bathroom. When I looked at the screen, I stopped dead in my tracks. It couldn't be. Tuesday, September 12th, the date on the screen read. 
stared, feeling a chill run down my spine. But I did everything right. I fixed everything. I heard Alex stir a bit on the bed behind me and rushed into the bathroom, locking the door behind me. What if the day is just going to repeat forever, no matter what I do? What if it was never about getting the day right? What if I'm just doomed to repeat the same fucking day over and over? Maybe I'm just losing my mind. Maybe I'm just trapped in a delusion. I shook my head. My gut told me that there was something meant to happen today, and I needed to figure out what. Well, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. As I brushed my teeth and carried on with my morning routine, I thought through the previous versions of this day I had gone through and what had changed. The fire definitely needed to be stopped, but maybe this time, Alex could stay home instead of me. That way, he would be spared an afternoon filled with shitty racist comments, and I wouldn't have to miss a day of school. After all, Alex could work remotely. Worth a shot, I thought as I heard Alex get up. When I finished in the bathroom, I made up a similar story to the day before about smelling something concerning and thinking we should get someone out ASAP to look at the HVAC unit. I volunteered to call someone while he was getting ready, and he smiled sleepily and said that sounded good to him. I went downstairs and called the HVAC service that had come out... yesterday? After some pressing, they agreed to send someone out today. I hung up, then turned off the air conditioning. I remembered the technician asking me to do that the day before when she came out and wanted to save a step. Besides, it would keep Alex from questioning the smell that didn't actually exist. It was going to be a mild day out anyway, so the house wouldn't get uncomfortable without it. I told Alex about the technician coming out today, and before I could suggest it, he volunteered to stay home. I smiled and thanked him. No problem. It's easier for me to stay home than you anyway. As I finished getting ready to head out, Alex got set up in the office and Dante settled into his spot under the window. He told me he would let me know when the technician got there and whether they found anything. Sounds good. Thanks, hon. I said knowing already when the tech would arrive and what they would find. I went to the key hook and hesitated a moment. Was it better to take my car or his? Did it matter? I ended up taking my own car, figuring it didn't matter too much at this point who took it to the shop. If this doesn't work, I'll do it differently next time. I thought somewhat bitterly. The day went as I knew it would. The nosebleed, the pizza, the music teacher. I got the message from Alex saying what I already knew. I took the car to the shop while Alex started dinner. After dinner, 
We watched the same movie. And when I settled into bed, I gritted my teeth in frustration. Already feeling pessimistic about what I would wake up to. Day 10, Tuesday, September 12th. I didn't even bother looking at my phone to see what day it was. I could just tell. I lay there, staring up at the ceiling, doing what was now my morning checklist. I'd already tried getting us all out of the house for the fire, stopping the fire and going to work, stopping the fire and staying home, stopping the fire and getting all of us out of the house, taking my car to the shop, having Alex take my car, not bothering with the car at all. Nothing had worked. And here I was, living this goddamn day for the tenth goddamn time. What was left to try? I tried avoiding the traffic in the morning, getting stuck in it, leaving my lunch at home, avoiding the music teacher, telling him off. I'd even thrown in another trip to the cafe on one of the days because I wanted some pastries. Maybe I'll stay home today so I can figure it out. I can't keep doing this. I made the calls to set up the appointment and get a sub for my class. Once Alex left for work, I poured myself a strong drink and got to work. I wrote it all down and studied the list, turning each day over and over in my mind. There had to be something I was missing. Dante must have felt my nervous energy because he came over and rested his head on my lap. What the hell does it want from me? I asked him, scratching behind his ears. He looked up at me and huffed, which was more of a response than I had. I didn't bother taking the car to Mike, figuring it didn't matter because I would likely be repeating the day again anyway. I thought through the original day and remembered what had originally been out of whack that day. Realization settled heavily on me. I think I know what the day wants. I thought, tears pricking my eyelids. I suggested that Alex and I eat dinner on the couch that night, wanting to be as close to him as possible. Instead of watching the movie again, I lay in his arms and we just talked for a long time about anything and everything. He talked about his hopes for our future, a bigger home, a promotion, children. He massaged my scalp as he spoke, and I wrapped my arms tightly around him, wishing for the first time since this began that I would get the day wrong again tomorrow. Day 11, Tuesday, September 12th. I woke up feeling a strange mix of purpose and dread. I turned over and watched Alex sleep, taking in every detail of his face. I remembered the day we met, paired as lab partners because our last names were alphabetically close. I remembered our first date, our first kiss, the first time we'd slept together. 
I remembered meeting his parents and the warm way his mom greeted me, instantly making me feel welcome in her home. I remembered the day he proposed, the day we got married. Tears began to fall as I scooted close to him and kissed him. He woke up as I did, and I wrapped my arms around him, kissing him passionately. He embraced me, and we made love, our bodies entwining in the sheets as my alarm, then his, went off. Afterwards, I lay in his arms as long as I could, staring into his eyes. I love you, Alex. I told him, feeling a lump rise in my throat. He caressed my cheek. I love you too, Camille. Is everything okay? I nodded, wanting with all my heart to tell him what was wrong, but knowing that I couldn't. When finally he had to get up, I got ready for my day. As I got ready to leave, I grabbed Alex's keys, just as I had on that original morning. I reminded him about taking my car to Mike's to get the brakes changed. My voice sounded hollow in my ears. His was light and breezy in comparison. Sure, babe. No problem. See you later. I went through the day as I had originally. I drove the route with the traffic jam. My student got the nosebleed. I put my prepared lunch away when the pizza came out. I accepted the encounter with the music teacher. At home, I waited for the package with Alex's birthday present to be delivered. Once it arrived, I stared at it. Silent tears streaming down my cheeks. On impulse, I wrote him a note and stashed the box and the note in the trunk of his car. I got everything out to start dinner and watched the clock until Alex got home. When he did, having forgotten to take the car to Mike's, my heart pounded in my chest. It was time to fix things. Alex looked so tired and stressed when he came in. He came in to kiss me hello, then realized as he did so that he had forgotten about the car. He started to turn to put his jacket back on and head out into the garage. I stopped him and hugged him tightly, breathing in his scent as I clung to him. He kissed the top of my head and said he would be back soon. I nodded and smiled up at him, thanking him for taking my car. I love you. I called after him as he left. I love you too. I'll be right back. Once Alex left, I took Dante outside. I tied him up as far away from the house as I could with some food and water, then gave him a long hug. You're a good boy, Dante. I gave him a scratch behind the ears and a treat, then headed back inside to wait. Within 15 minutes, I could smell something burning. Within 30, 
There was smoke filling the room. My eyes watered, and I started to cough as I heard the crackle of the flames. I thought of Alex and Dante, and smiled a bittersweet smile. I was righting my wrong. I was fixing it. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. I thought to myself as the room became unbearably hot and I began to struggle to breathe. Hopefully, this try would be a success. In our final tale, we meet a woman who tried to end her life. She almost brought her life to an end, but instead has lived on and now shares her experience. And in this tale, shared with us by author E.S. Nocturne, we learn in a very visceral way why there should always be an alternative to cutting one's life short intentionally. Performing this tale is Jessica McAvoy. So remember... There are always ways to get better. There are reasons to carry on, and we should always choose to avoid the Shredder. Let me tell you why you never want to commit suicide. I'm going to tell you what's waiting on the other end, which I can do because I lived it. You don't have to believe me. It won't matter one way or the other. You'll wake up by opening your eyes to a fading darkness and scalding dry heat. You're in some memory of physical form with all your senses turned up like the tail end of a bad trip. Everything is blurry at first. Then you see where you are. You're standing on some ground surrounded by rocky crags. The tips of them are burnt black, scorched, and the atmosphere is dark with ash and sulfur that flies up your nostrils and burns. You'll realize you're naked when you try to cover your nose with your shirt. Flecks of sparks constantly sting your skin. When your vision clears, the scene before you is thousands of other people, naked like you, looking lost like victims of a holocaust. Then there is a feeling of despair so deep you feel it in your bones. You're heavy like lead, like you're going to sink to the ground any moment and never get up again. Eventually, there is nothing else to do, so you walk, wandering around on your crag, hopping awkwardly over cracks to make a path towards someone, anyone, who can tell you what's going on. As soon as you approach someone, you take one look at their face, and you know that person will never have a conversation with you, because they are looking through you, 
and their eyes are haunted, and there is no way there's any sanity left in them. Other people do wander around, though. So will you, at first. Now and then a person will say something. Usually it's a phrase, something they tend to repeat. These are the last thoughts from the ends of their lives, a repeating injury from whatever memory torments them. One will tell you they didn't mean to do it. Another will say they never got to say goodbye. Many will state what they regret, some kind of unfinished business. The addicts are the worst. You can tell that they have the greatest weight of guilt, and all you'll ever get from them are reasons and apologies over and over again because they're never quite good enough. I shake a few off before I finally start to wonder about the queue of souls ahead. What is everyone standing in line for? Is this where we get our punishments or something? Since there's no sense of time, you'll go when you're ready. Oh, believe me, you'll go. Eventually you'll go because it's the only thing that feels forward. The only thing that marks a beginning, middle, and end. You'll probably even think, as I did, about the irony of standing in line in hell for what feels like eternity. And how if you were to imagine hell, that's one of the things it might be, if you were joking. But you somehow can't find the humor. It's like you can't remember what it feels like for anything to be funny. It's just too sad. The stench of sweat in front and behind you from all those people is actually worse than the ash. You almost can't believe it. There's something about smelling the cooking sweat of despair that... It's like their horror is seeping into you and through you, and you're feeling all of it. Everyone's, in addition to yours. All the questions, fears, and worst of all, the loneliness. They shuffle forward. Then you wait for a very long time. And they shuffle a few feet forward again. And again. Wait. And again. Then you start to hear a sound I can only describe as cosmic screaming. And you feel suddenly cold, knowing that what is ahead of you is worse than anything you could possibly have imagined. You strain to see over the hundreds of thousands of bald, burnt heads in front of you and catch a glimpse of some enormous machine. Long, segmented limbs bent like a crane moving around up there, working on something. That must be where you are going. But it's not a machine. I didn't think anything could be worse, but the Guardian is. You see him. Her. It. Rising above the line just in front of you, and it's like a great insect. A fire ant with a head the size of a mountain peak. It has black, liquid eyes that seem vacant of intelligence. And for one horrifying second, you think it is going to eat you. But as you get closer, you start to see what's actually happening. And you become aware of a strange, thrumming sound. The kind of sound you can feel all through you. You're vibrating with it. Your teeth chattering. And gradually, you realize it is talking. You don't know if it's telepathy or an actual sound, somewhere far below the lowest tone that could be heard by a living human. 
All you know is the sound is like a purr, a rumble, but without any sense of emotion. I watched what happened then, very closely, because I could see a black void, a portal of some kind, and the line was going toward it, and the screams were coming from it. The insect speaks to them, but only they seem to understand the message. Then the unfathomable happens. The person walks forward and falls into the void, just like a stick falling from a table. And their scream, the scream of their very soul, is added to the cosmic wail coming from the portal. And you don't find out why. Why people seem to be going in there of their own volition, not running and not being thrown in, until it speaks to you. It must repeat the same answers to the same questions infinitely. Who or what is it? What is its role? What is this place? What is that black hole? Do I have to go in there? What will happen if I do? Can I leave? Can I go back? Can I go to the other place? I laugh bitterly whenever I think of that last one. Whole heaving laughs that double me over until tears stream down my face. Then, in that purring, emotionless thrum, the insect will tell you essentially this. It is no devil, no great being, no determiner of fates. It is simply a guardian performing maintenance on a universal machine that seems to have been entirely abandoned. Who built it? We don't know. They have gone far behind where anyone can find them. They may even be dead. But the Guardian has its job, and it performs it dutifully with the mechanical speed of a factory worker on an assembly line. What's its job? Recycling. The Guardian, you see, is churning up the trash. And the reason people go into the shredder to have their souls ripped apart is because there is nowhere else to go. Yes, the Guardian tells you, you can go back. But there is no other place. No heaven or good place. No paradise. No benevolent being waiting to reward the good or the not-so-bad. There is simply the entropy and destruction of the universe toward its eventual burnout, and we are pieces of it being churned in the great machine and spat back out in disseminated pain that lasts forever. There is no nothingness, either. There is only the machine, and this, the shredder of souls. So, I chose to go back. I tell myself I'll take another chance at life. And I wake up in the hospital bed, the taste of vomit in my mouth, dripping down the side of my cheek, with a tube in my throat and electrodes sticking to me. I wake up and it's a miracle, everyone says. And I get my second chance at life. But the funny thing is, it does not feel like a second chance. Just a waiting. The waiting of a soul on the mound of garbage in the great landfill of matter and energy, waiting to be recycled and torn apart, but never, ever, ever 
to rest. And you try to live knowing this, knowing there is nothing, not even nothing. And that's when you begin to understand why the people walk willingly into the shredder. Because why not? It says there is nothing. And once you go into the shredder, you cannot change your mind. That's it. Pain for eternity. No rest. No blackout. No darkness. No nothingness. But you just can't help thinking somehow. Maybe. It must be better than knowing what you now know. Disperse this night, poetic works from darkness alight. We leave you with this, a question on a theme. Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Ollie White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for being a supportive Season Pass member and for joining us within the exquisite horror of our reality. This audio program is copyright 2023 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.